Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 44 of the Lawyerist podcast, where we talk to Matthew Butterick, the author of Typography for Lawyers, and the creator of the beautiful fonts we use on Lawyerist. So we need a favor. In order to bring you this podcast, we have to pay Paul, our audio editor, to do the hard work of taking our recordings and stitching them together, cutting out the coughs and sniffles, and making everyone sound as good as we can. And of course, Aaron and I have to put in a bunch of time planning and recording, and we have to pay to host the podcast at Libsyn in order to get it to iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and we have some other costs. The point is, it takes money to keep the podcast going, and our sponsors are only covering a small part of the cost. So we're asking for your help. We'd like you to help support this podcast with a contribution. You already pay 99 cents or more for a song on iTunes or Amazon or Google Play, and we think the guests we've brought on the podcast are worth at least that. So if you can help out, visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast. It's a big red button in the middle of the page. You can pay for one episode or 100, and your contribution will help us keep the podcast coming every week in 2016. And please subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or check it out every week at lawyerist.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Take a minute to check out our practical and easy-to-use lawyering survival guides at lawyerist.com slash guides, including our new 30-minute WordPress setup guide. You can also just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code podcast to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You're more productive when you aren't interrupted, and Ruby can help with that. Ruby answers lawyerists' phone, and I love being able to trust them to do a great job. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So today I want to talk about something that uh, Sam Harden, one of our writers, covered a few weeks ago and is really kind of um, exploding in a bunch of different directions. And this is the idea of investing in lawsuits, um, collecting money to help deal with the legal system. Uh, It goes by various names, uh, litigation funding, crowdfunding, um, and there's a couple different ways in which this manifests. There's the traditional, you know, um, litigation defense funds where you ask people to contribute to your lawyer's fees, and that's been around forever. And there's litigation funding, which has been around for a while, which is where somebody essentially fronts you the money to pay for your litigation in exchange for a cut of the settlement or the the jury award. And then there's this new thing inspired by Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, where you can sort of do litigation crowdfunding, but also sometimes people are just asking for money to help pay their bills, um, their lawsuit-related bills. And so it's an interesting world of asking other people to pay for your, to fund your litigation, your, your criminal fines and things that's happening right now. Yeah, so there's an article in Wired a little while ago that we'll link to in the show notes about a woman who funded, who paid for the fines she had incurred in a criminal case um, using in one of these crowdfunding sites. And so she asked random people to give her money to pay the $650 fine she owed. And Wired 
magazine indicated that this was kind of the next wave of interesting stuff in legal funding. And I thought that story was actually totally uninteresting because like criminal defense funds and legal defense funds have been around forever and having people help pay your fine is really them just like feeling sympathy for you, which is mm-hmm. not very cutting edge at all. I think the the really interesting part is when we're going to start moving towards random people contributing small amounts of money, hoping to make money on your class action suit or your med mal case um, without much information and potentially risking a lot of their money um, to fund cases where they think they can make money, which is very different than helping someone out who's in need. Well, and it's a little different than traditional legal funding, which is um, essentially a loan of not not a short term loan necessarily, but it's a you know a loan for the length of the lawsuit. And there's an, another kind of weird lawsuit out of uh, Colorado where the Colorado court uh, just decided that litigation funding and payday lending are effectively the same thing um, because they're short term high interest loans. Um, but that's traditional legal funding, not not the idea that you're going to go on Kickstarter and do a Kickstarter for your lawsuit or your class action, which is kind of a yeah, it's a weird concept because people have enough trouble getting their heads around the fact that if they try to, quote, order something on Kickstarter, it may not arrive because the project may not take off. Um, trying to trying to make intelligent decisions on what sorts of lawsuits to fund seems like a whole other jump. Well, and I think part of the complication in kind of thinking about how the dynamics here is that Kickstarter and Indiegogo for the past five years haven't been equity-based. They, they have been more like pre-ordering products, and even mm-hmm. that that is not what they actually are, but that's been more what they're like. And so you could see a case where someone has a class action lawsuit and everyone who gives $10 gets a t-shirt. That would be very different than what hasn't yet happened, but what is likely about to, where everyone who gives $10 gets 0.1% of the settlement. Well, and I, I, I think before that, we may actually see, or along with that, we're going to see stuff like sue this asshole who's a big jerk. And, every, you know, like the right now we have these sort of social media um, mobs who go after people's jobs and try to get people fired. Um, the, isn't the next logical step to sue them? Sure, you could easily have a prospective one where you say, hey, if we can get together 100 grand, we'll go after the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And and potentially you've got lawyers who are taking the lead on that um, and trying to trying to go with the winds and 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 stockpile the money and make it happen. I I guess we'll see. Does that mean anonymous could be the plaintiff in some case? I guess they couldn't be the plaintiff per se, but they could certainly <laughs> organize it. And you know the internet internet mobs have a lot of uh, have a lot of short term power to to generate money and energy and momentum. So. It's certainly conceivable. And, I, you know, the concern, and I think Sam Harden wrote this in his article, is that, you know, the people's interest in putting money into lawsuits is going to have probably little or nothing to do with the merits in many cases of whether or not that lawsuit, lawsuit should be brought. And it means that lawsuits that need to be brought that aren't sexy may not have the funding that they need. Although if we're really talking about, like, internet mobs, they tend to be people who are looking at cases that would otherwise be on the margins. Yeah, that's true. And and maybe those maybe those margins need to get litigated. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm generally I think litigation funding is kind of a a little bit of a sleazy industry. Um, 
uh, the traditional you know lawsuit loans. I it, absolutely it can make sense in in edge cases, but um, but it, it it's it's kind of like the settlement funding industry where you're you're giving away um, less of a sure thing in the case of pending litigation, but you're giving away a lot um, in exchange for a very small benefit. And um, and I'm not a big fan of that. I, I am intrigued by the idea of crowdfunding for like, you know, what if there's a big constitutional case that needs to be brought? And um, and I guess, but wouldn't wouldn't you just find uh, an organization like the ACLU or the EFF to, to make that case happen? I don't know. Unless it required a whole bunch of research and discovery that someone would need to get paid for. Yeah, and, and maybe maybe it's the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the and the, and their conservative counterparts. Yeah, uh, Institute for Justice. Um, uh, who knows? Federalist Society, uh, American Constitution Society. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll be leading the charge on on crowdfunding. I don't know. Fascinating. It, it's fascinating. I you know you before we started recording, you asked me about a takeaway, and and my my knee jerk was kind of you know I think the fact that we need all of these weird ways to get into the courtroom is maybe a, maybe a sim- sign that things are broken. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe I shouldn't be quite so pessimistic about this whole deal. But um, but it's an interesting alternative way to fund lawsuits. And I'm, I'm not sure yet whether or not I think it's a good thing. All right. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Matthew Butterick about typography, building great briefs, and why you really, really ought to pay attention to these things. Listen up. Hi, this is Matthew Butterick. I'm a lawyer and designer and uh, the author of the book Typography for Lawyers, uh, wherein I combine these two interests, uh, trying to get better typography into the legal profession. And uh, I'm also a designer of fonts, including uh, some that are heavily used by lawyers. Four now, right? Uh, Yes. uh, I mean, we may be uh, (laughs) reaching saturation, but but yes, that's right. I I was curious about that. I mean, how do you, do you just, do you just keep designing fonts or do you, are you going to have like your opus and you'll have this five or four or seven and that's it? You know, I, I think it's, it's uh, certainly a question that every person who, I, and I should clarify for, for your, your listeners. My first job out of college, I studied uh, typography and design in college, and, and my first job afterwards was doing digital font design. So this isn't something I, you know, just got an idea in my head to, to, to start doing. It's more that, uh, and in fact, when I started the Typography for Lawyers project, people who knew about that background said, oh, well, will you ever do a font for lawyers? And I said, why would I do that? That's, that's hmm. silly. But, you know, time passes, and I, you know, I just, got to think about it more and you know I can definitely start to see where there is a, a gap that that could be filled you know and and that's really the 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 small thread that every type designer starts to pull on the sweater and then it gets longer and longer so uh and then you know you you start the project and you know years pass and then suddenly you, you have a font so it's it's more about um proceeding from from needs and, and also needs that I have in my own work you know I I you know, like everybody else, uh, have have typographic frustrations. Except I'm in a, a position where, uh, for better or for worse, uh, I can say, "Hey, I can I can I can make my own font that's that's better than than these other ones out here." So to answer your question, uh, no, I don't think it's it's going to be an, an indefinite campaign. But uh, you know, I've 
these these four, and I use them the the new tip edition of, of typography for lawyers. I've I've changed the layout, and actually the website typographyforlawyers.com uses these fonts too. You know, there's one uh, a serif face for body text. There's a sans serif, uh, a, a monospaced like a typewriter style font, and then a sort of new display font for uh, for for titles and and whatnot. When I sh- I should say obviously the the fonts are displayed to their best effect on your site, but we just did something that I've been wanting to do for. Well, ever since I I saw Equity, your your sans serif font for lawyers come out, which is Lawyerist is now set in Equity and Concourse and um, Triplicate, which are um, Concourse is your sans serif font that we use for our headings. Equity is the uh, I'm sorry, and Equity is the serif font that we use for the body text. And Triplicate is if you find little code blocks in our site, um, that's the monospace font. And uh, I think it looks really sharp. Those are beautiful fonts. So great. No, I, I, I've seen the the redesign. It looks great. And I mean, I I can can say, I mean, since you know now that I've been doing this a few years, I mean, I have literally thousands of lawyers out there using the, these fonts, and they send me work that they've done, and you know, it looks great. And and my my favorite part of it really is you know when they write to me and they say, uh, well, some of the comments are very funny. Some people credit me for helping them win more in court, which I like, I don't want to take that. Um, I also appreciate. It when people say, "Oh, like even opposing counsel thought my documents look great," and you know, opposing counsel doesn't like anything. <laughs> Though the best one was the gentleman who said, "I was so excited. You know, I've been using your your book and your fonts and all these documents, and uh, the thing is that I got I got a document back from opposing counsel, and he had your font too." And I said, "Oh, nice. foiled. Uh, he's already he's beaten me to it. So now we're going to be evenly matched." Uh, you know, one of the things I like about Equity is that. Uh, if I'm, I think I'm right about this. You designed it to take up the same letter spaces as Times New Roman, right? Right. And I mean, let, let's. Uh, I don't want to get get too nerdy because I think when people think about, well, you know, why should I use fonts that aren't, you know, the ones that are already on my computer? I mean, if you go out and look, you're going to find there's thousands out there, and then you get scared because you you wonder why should I use these? I mean, that that's right. I mean, one of the issues after the first edition of the book came out, and I have font recommendations in it, is the lawyer said to me, you know, I, I like these fonts that you've recommended, but one issue that I find is that a lot of them uh, take up more uh, space on mm-hmm. the page than Times New Roman, and thus if I'm in a page limit jurisdiction, uh, you know, I find that I'm not you know, maximizing every possible square inch. Uh, and I had to think about that and say, you know, that's that's legitimate. And one uh, interesting fact about Times New Roman, because it was originally designed for the the newspaper, the Times of London, it was specifically designed to be pretty space efficient, because obviously newspapers like to fit, uh, <laughs> like lawyers, newspapers like to fit as much material per square inch as they can. So it ends up being true that, that a lot of fonts don't, don't fit the same amount of information. So, you know, talking, as I said earlier, about, you know, starting to have, you know, these ideas, like what's the impetus to start a font? Well, hey, could I do a font that, as you say, takes up roughly the space that Times New Roman does, i.e. that is, is, is rather economical, compact on the page, but, you know, addresses some of Times New Roman's flaws, which I would say are, one, that everybody uses it, and it's just boring as hell. Second, you know, it's got a terrible italic. It doesn't have small caps. I mean, we could go on. So, well, let's talk let's talk about another problem is that the New York Times doesn't even use it anymore and neither does the Times of London, right? So, 
Um, does the Times of London not use it? I don't know. I think that's I probably I true. So. I mean, yeah. uh, what what happened was it, it just as true today. I mean, when the Times of London started using it, uh, it was made available to to you know letterpress printers, and of course, everyone wanted to buy it because it's the new font that the Times mm-hmm. of London is using. Well, starting in motion, this kind of <laughs> cascading uh, issue where every time somebody invents a new typesetting technology, well, one of the first fonts they got to have is is Times New Roman because it's so popular, right? So strangely, it has allowed it to maintain this iron grip <laughs> for you know coming up on a hundred years, uh, you know, billions, and 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 that even in fact got worse when you know Mac and Windows came along, and of course they licensed Times New Roman and and so on and so forth. So you know, as I say to lawyers in the book, I mean Times New Roman is not a font choice so much as the the absence of a font choice because it's just it is you know the 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 font of 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 last resort. You know sometimes so I I've, I've been um I've been angry about Times New Roman for a long time um for reasons of my own and then typography for lawyers came along and I was like oh you know the, here is the 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 bible that I can give to people to show them why they should be using different fonts. Um uh, you know and I think the 7th or 6th circuit has their own typography guide but but what I mean what's the best reason to to pick something else basically anything else right what, what how do you, how do you persuade people you know the the message of the book is not about you know change your font it's about change your typography and it's it's sort of about showing lawyers here's a way to care about your your written work in a way that maybe you weren't caring about it and as i say right at the outset typography isn't just about fonts though that's a common misconception it's about all of the decisions that go into what's happening on the printed page. And of course, you know, as lawyers, we are turning out a huge amount of of written work as, you know, necessarily as part of our jobs. So, uh, why not spend a little time thinking about the presentation of the work just in the same way that if we were you know, going to an oral argument in court, you know, we wouldn't wear uh, sweatpants and flip-flops, even though the court rules would allow us to, uh, you know, and we wouldn't, you know, drone on uh, in front of the, the the judges, you know, in a, in a boring way. We we kind of we would have spent a, a certain amount of time uh, honing the presentation so that the you know the, the presentation befits the uh, the content. And I, so you come onto the, and I think that that's an argument that lawyers can follow. But then when you really look at their their written output, they spend no time thinking about typography. And to be fair, I'm not really sure where lawyers should have learned about this because it's you know. Where, uh, it's- but what surprises me is often the resistance to it. It's um, it's I'm not you know I I, I don't I don't think it matters what font I use um, because it's the substance that matters. But the presentation and the substance are kind of you you know you you said you don't like taking responsibility for winning arguments based on a better font, but but it it is that if you make it easier on the judge if you give them a more a, a cleaner better looking brief, it maybe comes across as more authoritative than it would otherwise. Right. I mean, I, I again, why do we spend time, uh, you know, perfecting uh, an oral argument the way we present it? Why do we spend time, you know, picking out a certain suit for a court? This, because this stuff matters. And uh, for me, you know, this, this uh, substance versus presentation dichotomy is, is totally false. And it's funny because it's certainly a, an objection that I've heard a lot after the first edition of the book came out. And I spent <laughs> more time in the second edition sort of debunking it because I really think that these two considerations are entangled in a way that is often not 
you know, we don't often acknowledge. And I'm not trying to say that in some mumbo jumbo way. I just mean it in the sense that, you know, as human beings, we have, like, we, we try to gather information from all of our senses, right? That's why we, we worry about nonverbal communication. Because if you're standing next to somebody talking, you know, they're, they're sending you all these other signals that you're allowed to, to, to take in and, and figure out. And I, and I think it's, it's the same that's true on, on the printed page. We as readers, we can and we do make judgments about printed material based on how it looks. And I, I can say this because we do it all the time in, in all the other spheres of, of our, uh, you know, of reading, whether it's newspapers or magazines or picking out a bottle of wine or deciding what movie to go to. I mean, we are just, you know, that's part of our, uh, however you want to say it, like ability to, uh, to take in visual information and make judgments about it. So we can't not use uh, that facility. And so, you know, again, on the printed page, it's like, why not just, you know, make use of that fact? You know, I, I've heard some lawyers say that they think making your brief stand out is actually something that might get them points docked by a judge um, because they they think the judge is expecting Times New Roman and, and is expecting two spaces between a period and is expecting one inch margins. And if you deviate from that, the judge will think worse of you. And I'm curious, I imagine if anybody's heard those stories, it would be you. Have Have you been able to verify any instances of judges docking points for good typography? <laughs> well, first I can I can say honestly that you know now that that again not bragging here. I mean thousands of of lawyers have read the book and are, are putting it to work and I am just saying it because if there was going to be a big problem <laughs> I would have heard about it by now. Somebody would have come back to me and said, "This is terrible. This got me in so much mm-hmm. trouble." It's never happened. It's nobody yeah. has ever said, uh, you know, I followed your advice and I got in trouble because this this is such a, a great uh, thing that lawyers like to do. It's in, and I talk about it in the book now. It's it's called what judges want. That's the game. Which is well, I I would love to do that, but what judges want is X, Y, and Z. And the thing is, every lawyer who doesn't want to improve the the presentation of their work has a different set of you know prejudices about what judges <laughs> want. But why is this uh, fallacious? Because first, you know, judges are obviously as different from each other as lawyers are. So the idea of of painting them with a broad brush is is pretty silly. Um you know, but in a second, you know, judges spend time thinking about the presentation of their work. And it's just, uh, I don't know. The other funny thing about it is that when lawyers say, here's what judges want, the things that they list off are basically the things that that lawyer does and has done for the last 25 years. So mm-hmm. in the end, I think it's simply a a way of you know, avoiding uh, learning something new, uh, trying something new. And I am always, and I say in the book, I, I don't, I've never told lawyers you know, people think I'm telling them to break the rules. Like, no, I'm follow all the rules. But when you look at, say, court rules, uh, you'll find that they're not, uh, they don't tell you everything about how to format a document. They follow leave, the rules better. Yeah, yeah, it's like they actually leave a lot to your discretion. And I'm not saying that you should use that discretion to be different for the sake of being different or to call attention to yourself. I'm saying you should, uh, you, you you need to to interpret the rules in order to, to come up with decent typography because the rules themselves don't, tell you how to do it. So it's more about filling in what the rules uh, leave incomplete. And then on the other side of it, again, I've had so many positive stories of lawyers saying, oh, you know, the judge complimented me, the opposing counsel complimented me, the client complimented me. I mean, people 
find out very quickly that readers do notice. Uh, and again, it can be subtle. It's just you know putting a little more care into it. Uh, ha- and however you want to do it, whether you want to change the font, fine. If you don't, you just want to work with things like improving the the line length. I mean, I talk about in the book, there's really four key considerations uh, that go into any document. Oh, let's, let's touch on those then. Let's talk about, yeah. So the four considerations, uh, first, uh, the point size of the font. Uh, second, the line length, which is to say the, the you know, distance from the left to the right sides. Uh, third, the line spacing, meaning the vertical distance between lines. And then the fourth choice is the font. Now, those four choices together have the greatest influence on what I call the body text, right? Whatever your main uh, mm-hmm. content of the document is. And because there's more of that in your document than anything else, then obviously, you know, if the, if the typography of the body text is good, then overall your document's going to look good. Or if it's not, you know, your document's not going to come across well. Uh, I think sometimes, and I say that because I think sometimes there's a there's a an urge to oh let's like fiddle around with the caption page and make that look nice, and then not really pay any attention to the you know the, the forty pages that come after that. I'm 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 in favor of going the opposite direction. It's like start with you know the 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 biggest uh, issue, which is the body text, and then everything else uh, starts to f- fall into place. And not uh, you know I mean, and it makes a difference. It it. it kind of sounds talking to you as a typographer like this is esoteric stuff and somebody and and some of it is right like you clearly have an eye for things that I don't and that other people don't um but you know when I when I finished devouring typography for lawyers and I started applying it to the next thing I did which I think was a uh uh was either an appellate brief or a set of of forms that I was developing um, you know, my wife, uh, who is, who has had not paid any attention to typography whatsoever, uh, picks it up and looks at it and she goes, wow, this is a really great looking document. Um, and I, that's, that's all credit to you. Cause I was just trying to follow your, your directions. Um, but it, it really does make a difference and it makes your work, um, stand out as a polished thing. Um, I appreciate that. And all your, all the skeptics in the audience right now are saying, oh, well, his wife liked it. Uh. My, my wife is a lawyer, uh, just FYI. So <laughs> um, I think the, there's another dimension of it too, which, you know, for people who don't like the, the, the presentation counts argument, which I don't know why it should be controversial, but you know, I think there's a sense in which good typography is a benevolent force because in addition to making your document look good, I think what we see is that lawyers just in general have, I'm sorry, lawyers. Terrible uh, habits in terms of how they go about formatting their documents. You know, they they do things uh, line by line and paragraph by paragraph. They don't know how to use hard page breaks and 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 so forth. And the thing is that all of that bad typography not only does it look bad, it also wastes your time because you know, it creates these unmanageable documents. And and part of my message is that if you get into good typography and you also learn the tools of good typography such as you know learning how to you know build these uh, you know better typography into your you know character styles and your paragraph styles learn how to use things like you know hard line breaks and page breaks learn how to format uh, headings correctly what you're going to find is that your documents actually you know, the next one, again, it may, might take a few hours to set up initially, but the next one's going to come together faster. And over time, you're going to find that the cost of good typography is, is even less than the cost of bad typography. So given that, why wouldn't you want to use this thing? All it wants to do is make your life easier. Well, and I feel like I, I should have led with um, with this, which is um, 
listeners, you should have typography for lawyers on your shelf. Um, this is uh, this is the kind of style guide that um, that you should have alongside uh, the blue book or whatever citation manual you have. Um, and the Red Book or whatever style guide you have for legal writing, whether it's the Chicago Manual of Style, the Red Book, whatever, this should be your guidebook for how to construct your actual briefs. Um, so I'm just going to sell it for you, Matthew, because, <laughs> because you. I really do. I think Brian, Brian Garner, uh, you know, the, the Black's Law Dictionary, modern Dictionary of Modern American Usage, you know, kind of the godfather of legal writing, um, wrote the introduction to the book. Um, and he, I think in the in- introduction, he said it was his hope that um, – Lawyers would just agree to use Butterick on on the brief when it comes to typography in the same way that they might agree to use the Blue Book for citations, uh, and I I think that the practice of law would be a much more pleasant place if more lawyers did that. Um, so that's my pitch. Thank for, you, thank you. And it would be a much more pleasant place if every uh, lawyer you know, got uh, Brian's books and, and fo- followed his oh, totally. very sound advice about plain language. So I don't kid myself that uh, you know in in a few years I'll have you know infected 85% of, of lawyerdom. But, you know, the lawyers who like it really, really like it. And there's a lot of lawyers who just say, I, you know, one of my favorite uh, instances was the, uh, and I, I recount this story in the book now, is that uh, you know, doing a CLE session at a at a big firm, you know, and and you go in and they've got all the security and they've got the lavish lunch buffet and the teleconferencing, you know, it's just it's all a very high gloss production, right? And then at the end, one of the senior partners says to me, "He's like, you know, it's great that you're into typography, but what does this have to do with the practice of law?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just want to say, what does any of this have to do with the practice of law? I mean, so much of what we surround ourselves with, well, not, not me, but a, a lot of what the sort of trappings of lawyerdom don't have anything to do with being a lawyer, right? I mean, you, you the, 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 the conference rooms and the, the video conferencing and the lunch buffets. So uh, I contend to you that like the written word, that really has a lot to do with, with being a lawyer. So I don't, I never say to anyone that that typography is more important than the substance of your argument, but you know it 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 pertains to uh, to, to the written word. It can make your written output better, and thus it actually does have something to do with the practice of law that a lot of this other stuff doesn't. Well, and on sort of maybe the extreme end of of bad habits and and why typography makes a difference, I think it was Judge Kaczynski, the the fairly outspoken. Um, judge out west who said that um, he just ignores block quotes because a block quote is a signal that that you haven't said anything of importance. Um, and there's there's a lot of evidence that putting things in all capital letters uh, makes it so difficult to read that most people unconsciously skip over it. Um, and so do long passages of boldface text. Um, and so what do statutes and lawyers do when they want to highlight something? They put it in bold, they might put it in all caps, and they put it in a big block set off as a, as a quote. Um, and that's the kind of typographical decision um, that also has to do with persuasion directly. If the judge is going to unconsciously skip over it, um, or consciously maybe in the case of Kaczynski, um, you're missing a chance to win your argument, and making better decisions about how you set that type can actually help you win your case. So, Yeah, and, and the uh, one of the, um, I would say, Okay, I don't think. I hope nobody is going to, you know, get me in trouble for saying one of the unfortunate things about the legal profession is that even though it's ostensibly uh, founded on, you know, individual 
research and judgment. <laughs> there is so much uh, uh, herd following. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. lawyers just feel so much safer if they're copying something that the last lawyer did, even if it didn't make any sense, right? Yep. It's just, well, that that person did it and he got away with it. So I feel comfortable doing it, which is a kind of crazy principle, but it, it's it's true throughout law, and it's also true in typography. But it's it's certainly not restricted to type, typography. I mean, all these strange little habits that lawyers have, and uh, you know, it's like if you've ever tried to. Uh, I, I know I, I did this once. You know, get the the draft of the settlement agreement from opposing counsel, and I'm like, why do you go on like listing you know these paragraphs that that have you know a thousand words when they could have ten. And he says, "Well, that's just the way we do things. That's just the way the last guy did it. The, mm-hmm. Come on, just just shut up and sign it." So <laughs> it just kind of wears down your resolve after a while. But but so much of of uh, you know, so I, a little bit of, of of this is about you know pushing back against mm-hmm. uh, some of these. Uh, another example, you know, I think uh, there's a certain perception among the Times New Roman fans that oh, doesn't every court require twelve point Times New Roman? Uh, no, yeah. it, they don't. <laughs> uh, in fact, I've never found a single court that requires. 12 point times new roman and you you can say i can say this to lawyers and they just won't believe it and well, and in like, fact, well, some courts have explicitly stated a preference otherwise the u.s supreme court uses what century school book i think uh the U- u.s supreme court forbids times new roman in yeah. fact you you cannot bring times new roman and so i, I will stand with the supreme court on that matter well and the uh, seventh circuit has its own typography guide that um i assume um posner must have written um, that uh, that goes into some de- length, lengthy detail about um, why you should not use two spaces between sentences in its court and why you should not use Times New Roman or monospaced um, types. And um, so one of the things that's interesting to me is that the insistence on doing things the way they've always been done somewhat flies in the face of what the courts are telling you themselves. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I think there's another part of this. I mean, the Seventh Circuit Guide is, is pretty great for those, you know, it's it's right there on the uh, the front page of, of their website. Fortunately, the Seventh Circuit and I agree on on uh, all, all typographic matters, but I, I think when you when we talk about the typography in the small, it can kind of come across as some sort of uh, you know esoteric pursuit, like we're you know sitting in our basement, you know, stroking our beard and you know brewing an IPA or something. And again, the whole point of this is not to just uh, make ourselves happy and satisfied. It's to make things easier on the reader, and you know that's something I come back to again and again. It's like how do you improve your typography, design your document to support you know, your message, to support your argument and make it easier for your reader to get in, see what they need to see, read what they need to read and get out. Because again, and I, and I, I, I lead off with this because it's so important. Readers, like, they don't, they're, they're looking for any reason to, to give up on your document. And, Especially a tired, overworked judge who is Desperately trying to get the general idea of your arguments the night before you show up in court. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, Brian Garner is big on this too. Why? Why does Brian Garner always talk about writing uh, in a concise manner, in a short manner? Because you don't want to spend attention <laughs> that you don't have to. It's like you mm-hmm. only get so much attention. Make the most of it. And really, this my argument about typography is exactly adjacent to it. You know, we're not trying to to baffle anybody with beautiful fonts. We're just trying to make it so you know they can you know, <laughs> read our document and, and not get angry and give up. So. so one of our writers, Matthew Salzweddle, um, who is a, a legal writing buff and a big fan, um, said that he wanted me to ask you, and I think this sort of ties up the conversation we've been having, 
which is how how could junior lawyers cogently explain to their bosses why good typography is so important um, because many bosses don't think it matters. And I think I think the the route that typography for lawyers and typography in general takes to law firms is very often through the younger junior lawyers who don't get to be to have the final say. Um, so how do you how should we how should we make that argument to our superiors? <laughs> you know, and that's uh, young lawyers is one source. The other major source of infiltration uh, I found has been appellate lawyers. You know, if you have mm-hmm. a big firm with an appellate group, they're the ones who are, who are jumping up and down with the uh, with the typography for lawyers, and then the people who do the trials, are like, yeah, come on, I don't have time for that. What does mm-hmm. that have to do with the practice of law? Um, you know, to young lawyers, and I have, you know, people have written me and said, how do I how do I make my boss, you know, adopt all this? I say, you don't. I mean, you're the junior lawyer. Your job <laughs> is to learn to do things their way. And I'm not saying give up, but it's about, I think that typography works, it's it's a policy of attraction, really. And I feel that way about my own, you know, work in the world. I'm not, I don't have to sell this to lawyers. I just have to put it out there and eventually they'll they'll come and they'll see uh, how it can improve their work. So to, to young lawyers, I say, no, you don't go in and start, you know, complaining at everybody about all caps and underlining because they're going to think that you're barking up the wrong tree. Rather, you you just you know, you uh, just like you know, when you work with court rules, you have to sort of fill in what they leave incomplete. You know, if you're a young lawyer at, at a at a firm, you're trying to fill in what the you know, do what they tell you to, but then where they don't tell you to do things, make it better. Uh, and in your own work, you know, when you format a memo or something, like, use the principles of good typography because I tell you, if you're just gentle about it and you don't make a lot of noise, somebody's finally going to say, "Hey." Why is your document look so much better than all of ours? That question is, is finally going to happen. And that's the day that you can say, well, let me tell you about typography. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense, which is sort of do it on the sly. If you if you bring it up and you and you run into a wall, um, when you hand in your drafts, do them with good typography, and of course change it if you're asked to change it. Um, but count on the fact that anybody with two eyes will see that it's not as good looking after after you've changed it to Times New Roman or Courier or Arial or whatever god awful font they want you to use. Yeah, it's um, it's it's just it's not a subtle difference at all in the no. end you know, for, for from a reader's perspective. So again, if as long as you keep exposing people, expose them to it to to better typography in a, in a in a, a subtle and gentle manner, and and you will reap the dividend. You might also want to try saying, well, if it's your signature that goes on it, I'll format it however you want. But if it's my signature that goes on it, I want the freedom to use better typography if I want to. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the other part of it is that I, I may be uh, the the last probably generation of, of people in the world who who learned to type on a typewriter. It was I got a typewriter for my 10th birthday. It was like the greatest gift I'd I'd ever received. Uh, and uh, and then when I got a computer on my whatever it was, you know, 16th birthday, I was like, I'll forget about the typewriter. So you know lawyers are I mean I hate to make this a, a generational thing, but I think that that you know, the reason younger lawyers have an easier time with it is like they don't have, they didn't go through a typewriter phase. They grew up with a mouse in their hand and with a font menu. So talking about typography and what's going on in a, a word processing program is 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 an easier sell. They've already been there. So I, you know, I just think that over time this naturally becomes uh, a, a bigger part of of law law practice. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears then and pretend like we've convinced all of our listeners. Of course. Um, and let's talk about some of the typographical controversies. Yes. Um, uh, because because it when I say 
um, when I express a preference, people very rightly say, well, who the heck are you? Um, you just have write a website. Um, but I, with you, there's some authority behind your pronouncements. So, um, so let's start with, uh, with everybody's favorite, uh, spaces between sentences. Um, it should be one, right? Not two. Um, and why is that? <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to say that I feel like I'm winning on this issue because you are. When, <laughs> when I started the typography for lawyers project in, I mean, it started as a, as a, as a website in 2008 and then the first edition came out in, in 2010. Uh, but this was by far the, the topic that people wanted to argue about the most. And I do want to say argue about because, again, if we believe as lawyers that we're supposed to be evidence-driven, all the evidence suggests that you know one space is the right answer. And, and my evidence is this. Every professionally typeset book, newspaper, and magazine you've ever seen in your life has one space between sentences. So why do lawyers do two? I, I, I that's my that's my the one I always pull out. the The only exception to that, by the way, is many law review articles will publish two spaces. Um, but uh, but with the exception of law journals, um, I'll I'll say to people if it's you know go go pick any book off your shelf and measure and you'll find only one space. Um, and that seems to come as news to a lot of people. Uh, but that I found to be the most persuasive argument about one, not two, is that um, the the fact the way you're drafting your briefs is the exception, not the rule. Well, and lawyers, of course, have a have a crafty comeback when you you, you know you can broadly gesture to all printed material in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And they say yes, 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 but the rule is different in law. We have a different rule, is. and to which I say, look, and and this is why I'm and I do my own crafty judo uh, maneuver in the book, where one of my core principles of of legal typography is that legal typography should be measured by the same standards as professional typography, and maybe that wasn't always true because there was a time, you know, say. 20, 30, 50 years ago when lawyers didn't have access to the same level of, of printing technology, right? Mm-hmm. They had typewriters or they had early uh, computers, which they just weren't as nice as what could be done at a professional print shop. But those differences in technology have been largely erased, right? Today, lawyers with their uh, you know, with their personal computer and their you know, high-definition uh, color printer can create documents that are almost the equivalent of, of what you can get at a commercial print shop, right? That Really, so there's no reason to to allow legal documents to to you know survive at this lower standard. Now, lawyers like when I say that to them, like, okay, that makes good sense. And then you know we have the finishing move, which is so why would you put two spaces between sentences? Because that is one of these crazy little holdover habits from mm-hmm. the typewriter era. And if we're going to hold legal documents to the same standards, that's where we're going to start. But having said all that, I don't, you know, I, I don't make that the hill that I'm going to die on because I recognize uh, that you know it doesn't. <laughs> people say, does it really affect anything? Like, you know what? If I had a magic wand and I could change one bad habit of lawyers, it would definitely be the use, uh, the overuse, I should say, of all caps because that's and you alluded to it earlier. Mm-hmm. But that's an instance where. Uh, you're actually getting the exact opposite thing of what you you hope for. You're trying to to emphasize something and and say, hey, this is important. But 
when people see all caps, it's they're actually harder to read. Yeah, you're hiding it, right? So it's it's a way of of getting the reader to say, "Oh God, I'm just gonna kind of skim through this," and it's just it's the worst thing you can do if you want to emphasize something. So it's it's what I would call self defeating typography. So that kind of typography is actively gotcha. uh, dangerous. <laughs> Two spaces between sentences. I, I just it's more about wanting people to acknowledge that there are just as there are rules for grammar and spelling and usage, there are rules for typography and it's it's time to start acknowledging them. What about um, spaces around M? Well, actually, you know, before I get to that, what do you think about the Solicitor General's uh, decision to use an M space between sentences? You know, that's that's such a great like lawyerly thing they <laughs> did, it? right? Like, we're we're going to use one space, but it's a humongous space. It's like nice, <laughs> nice, you know, driving a truck through the loophole. Uh, an M space is actually, I, I know people say it's the width of a capital M. Actually, the M, it's not the letter M, it's the word E-M, oh. which is an old printer's measure. Uh, and an M is the, it's the same size as the point size of the font. So if you put an M space in a, in a 12 line of 12 point text, it's 12 points wide. It's enormous. It's about four times the width of a standard word space. So I would say that the Solicitor General has actually made things worse. Now, Interesting. whatever. <laughs> Uh, again, I, the Solicitor General, uh, a, a great organization, they're not right on every issue. Right. So. What about spaces around M dashes? This is something I've gone back and forth on over the years, um, and I'm unwilling to use the the narrow space thing because it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, I mean, that's one in the book that I say it, it's use your judgment because different fonts, I mean, once you discover the M dash and you start to say, oh, that's a that's a sharp uh, looking character. I know some some M dashes have a little extra space on the side, some don't. So that's that's an issue where I say, you know, d do what you like. I think uh, I, I think it was in typography for lawyers uh, was where I started becoming really particular about um, N, M, and dashes and hyphens um, to the point where on Lawyerist now you'll find that all of our ranges of numbers have proper end dashes on them. Um, well, that's, that's very nice. Uh, the big leap, <laughs> the big leap is between, is, I mean, again, the one that I'm trying to really get rid of is the habit of putting, using two or three hyphens in a row. Right. I mean, again, that's, people say, isn't that the way it's done? It's like, no, that's how uh, people who had typewriters tried to uh, kind of simulate an N dash or an M dash. But now that you have a computer, you don't need to use it like a typewriter anymore. Although I will say, I mean, uh, having switched to Mac recently, it is so much easier to type proper dashes on a Mac because there is a keyboard, sh very easy to access keyboard shortcut for it. Whereas on Windows, it's a lot harder to get that those those characters out. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so here's the, here's the piece of advice that you gave that um, I find that most lawyers just dismiss out of hand, um, which is margins. And, and really, it has to do with line length, um, but it comes out as, should people really have one and a half inch margins on the sides and um, shorter margins up top and a bigger margin on the bottom? And most lawyers just can't, that's so mind-blowing that they just um, forget it instantly. Well, I, I I would say that yeah, I mean I, I love to talk about uh, line length because I think that's it's one of the easiest things to fix in a document, and it's definitely one of the things that that really most obviously separates amateurish typography from from well considered typography, which is just that again, human readers uh, there is a comfortable line length which is about forty five to ninety 
characters per line. Uh, and the the one inch margins that are traditional on the you know, eight and a half by eleven paper, just they they create lines that are that are too long. And just by increasing so by increasing the margins and thereby shortening your lines, you're going to get a more legible, uh, more pleasing layout. Um, again, lawyers resist this. Why? I guess some of them don't want to, you know, they're worried about their page counts, but um, I don't know. If, if you've got the space for it, why not? And uh, by the way, you know, lawyers have sometimes asked me, you know, what, what, court rules I would enact if I had a magic wand. And it's not really about having a single court rule, but I would actually get rid of all these uh, page count rules and replace them with word counts. And and certain courts have, uh, but I think that's obviously the way to go. Because again, we're not in a world anymore where everybody's got a typewriter that produces the same number of of characters per line and lines per page. Well, Uh, and some courts do have margin requirements. Our our Court of Appeals in Minnesota has margin requirements, but I I believe they are minimum requirements. So you can use larger margins. Um, And I've been using one and a half inch margins on the sides for years now, ever since I read Typography for Lawyers, I just decided I was going to take as much of your advice as I could and do it. And um, and I, I, I don't even notice anymore. It's really jarring at first, and now I don't notice, and I think it makes everything that I produce much more readable. Um, you, you know, if any of our readers, if you've downloaded any of the free guides off our website, they'll have one and a half inch margins. Um, and and I would say also for the, if you know again, for those the thousands of skeptics who are listening, uh, you know all of this stuff is very cheap for you to try and find yeah. out for yourself. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Do it. I mean, you can you can get out your word processor, get out the last brief you filed, and you know f- fiddle around with 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 these settings in the way that that I suggest. See for yourself. Maybe you won't agree. But I have a hunch that you will, because again, you're you're a lawyer, but you're also a reader, and you're reading, you know, lots of professionally typeset stuff. So I actually think that lawyers have better taste in typography than they give themselves credit for, and it's really just a matter of of letting them unlock that part of their brain and allowing them to to apply it to their own work. So well, I give you permission. A, yeah, go ahead, fool around in Word. Um, and here's another example where if you go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, those opinions and the brief requirements specify quite large margins. Right. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court is a special case because they've got that, uh, it's, what is it? It's like the special booklet formatting. Yeah, you do submit smaller booklets but than regular size pages. It's a great example still of of why, you know, white space, I'm such a huge fan of white space. I mean, when you download a Supreme Court uh, uh opinion. It's actually formatted for a smaller page, but again, it works just as well on an eight and a half by 11 page. Mm-hmm. Why? Because, you know, the principles of good typography, the, you know, the the words per line and the, the, the vertical spacing and the point size, those have nothing to do with the overall size of the paper, right? You know what I mean? So, right. uh, it's, uh, it, it's a great example of, I mean, I think that a, a bad habit that we see is that people will often design their typography to fit the edges of the paper which is, I mean, paper no, sizes. You need, are, you need a buffer between whatever is beyond the edges of the paper and the text that you're reading. Yeah, and I mean, the the size of office paper is entirely, uh, you know, an arbitrary thing that literally was was it came up. The U.S. government def- devised that during the Hoover administration for some reason. I think it's like the most efficient <laughs> way to to manufacture paper. It has nothing to do with good typography. That's your problem. So uh, eight and a half by eleven, like that's just. You can ignore that when you're thinking about uh, how your your body text should look. 
So, um, serif versus sans serif fonts. Um, one of the most uh, annoying responses I sometimes get when we start talking about font choice is uh, lawyers will agree wholeheartedly that Times New Roman is a terrible choice, and then they will respond, they will follow up with, that's why we use Arial. Yeah. Arial, even <laughs> so, worse. So, um, it is even worse. Uh, so, but what about serif versus sans serif for briefs? There are definitely lawyers out there who insist on using Arial or Helvetica in their briefs, and um, it it seems like an unusual choice to me. And is there a typographical reason to prefer one versus the other when it comes to legibility? I yeah, I can't say that they're that they're doing it wrong. I try to you know minimize the the doing it wrong component mm-hmm. of, of my work, but uh, I think in general the that serif fonts are to American readers, anyways, uh, more familiar and comfortable for. Uh, for, for body text for, for long distance reading. Um, I say American because I think if you went to say Europe, you'd find a lot more books and magazines that use uh, sans serif a, a, oh, as body text, but it's not as common here. And um, so, so it's more of a getting used to it thing. Yeah. I think it's all just more of like cultural idiom. Yeah. And yeah, well, if you think about the, the huge range of, of writing systems that humans have, have used successfully over thousands of years. You, know, mm-hmm. you realize that legibility is is. I mean, there's people who do uh, scientific studies, and that's that's great and all. But in the you know in the large, legibility is is mostly about what you're used to uh, and what you're familiar with because you could, we can acclimate ourselves to pretty much anything. But um, so I, it's not really a rule, you know, that you have to use a, a serif versus a sans. But I I definitely recommend it, and that's what I would do in a court brief. Although I would say the the right perspective is not what do I like, but what do I think the judge will find it easiest to read. Uh, also, also true. But you know, I I I just again, it's maybe personal preference. But uh, again, mm-hmm. if you look at most books, newspapers, magazines, let's just call that the sort of corpus of of professional typography that most people are familiar with. Overwhelmingly, for body text, uh, it's going to be serif faces. So why not use? default fonts like Times New Roman, Arial, and Courier. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but um, but what's your best concise argument for doing something else? Well, there's situations where you you uh, where it's handy to use built-in what's the system fonts, like if you're exchanging documents with Well, with all right, lawyers. let's go there. This is the argument that you and I had in, an, in a great act of hubris by me. Um, I, I picked an argument with you about buying whether or not lawyers should use unusual fonts or buy fonts. Well, it, it's it's uh, I I don't recall much of the argument. What was the? <laughs> do you, I don't want you to rehash it. But I, there, I said lawyers should use system fonts, um, both for reasons of the the licenses that sometimes come with purchased fonts, um, and because um, especially when lawyers are exchanging drafts, um, if you haven't embedded the font properly, which you, I don't even think you can do on a Mac. Um, the the recipients are not getting the same document that you have carefully formatted uh, because they don't have that font on their computer. Right. I mean, it's an unfortunate truth that after 30 years of personal computing, there is no way <laughs> to embed a font in a word processing document so that it appears the same way on the other side. It's that's mm-hmm. crazy. You know, we put people on the moon, et cetera, et cetera. But that's just the way it is. Uh, so, you know, when lawyers email me, I said, you know what? Yeah, just just you know, use Times New Roman or use Helvetica for your draft document. But then at the end, you know switch it over. And if that makes them annoyed, I say, well, then I don't know. I mean, I can't. <laughs> that's part of the final typesetting. Yeah. Just, just, you know, there's, there's plenty of situations where, uh, where, I mean, you know, you talk to newspaper journalists, they're not like 
writing their story and the way it's going to look in the you know the final paper. That's that's something that's done at the end. So um, I, you know I think there are ways uh, around this. But to, to to answer your question, like why not use the system fonts again? If if it's all you can use, you can still make you know, good typography with them. But I, I recommend that lawyers move beyond them because it's just those system fonts, they're just so brutally overused. I mean, well, is is thing one. I mean, they're just everywhere and they don't, and they're not necessarily that good. I mean, the whole world of of uh, professional fonts, you know, the fonts that aren't uh, built into your, to your computer, uh, there's just so many uh, more stylistic choices. And again, I, I not just style, but, you know, fonts that, that actually work differently and have features that can, that can uh, help you do your work better, which again, if, if you haven't worked with professional fonts before, maybe seems a little foreign, like, well, how can a font actually make my life easier? But um, it's true, they can. So if you, if you had to pick a font to recommend um, that sort of one of the default Microsoft Office or Apple Pages fonts, what would you what would you pick if if you were forced to if you had no other options? Oh well, there are uh, you know I have a whole chart in the book uh, uh, you know ranking them all A B uh, C and and F fatal to your credibility. So mm-hmm. you know, there's probably uh, fifteen on the A list. So fonts, yeah. If I had to to use them, I'd be like, yeah, that's that's all right. Um, and I would have to say that in general, the, the the system fonts on both Windows and and Mac have have gotten better over the years. But you know, one bugaboo that I, I hear about is you know lawyers who really like to use things like Calibri or mm-hmm. Georgia or Verdana because they've heard that these fonts are optimized for the screen. And to, that is true. They are optimized for the screen in a very limited sense of the screen of Microsoft Windows while you're editing the document. But you know that the, the qualities that make them uh, good uh, on screen don't really carry over to the printed page. So uh, I, that's kind of my my major objection. The other part of it is that fonts like George and Verdana look good on on the screens of. 20 years ago, which is what they were <laughs> designed for. And as we enter this world of, you know, higher uh, resolution screens uh, and tablets and so forth, you know, the, the comparative advantage of these so-called screen optimized fonts is, is, is smaller and smaller. So uh, I always say to a lawyers, you know, for, for screen or for print, use the font that you would prefer in print, uh, mm-hmm. actually, because that, you know, is, is actually going to look uh best in a PDF. And then if somebody happens to print the document, it'll also look best coming out of the printer. So well, and, and there it, you go. The news is that m- more and more judges are reading briefs on iPads, which have crazy high resolution screens and really good font displays. And so you're going to want the print font. Right. So this is going to lead into a whole new uh, round of what judges want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My judge has an iPad. Well, what kind of iPad is it? Is it the new one or the old one? We, we've even we've got a couple of posts by uh, by an appellate lawyer on, you know, if you you might as well assume your judge is reading it on an iPad, and so here's here's some changes to formatting that you might want to make um, based on that. So, um, it, did you did you see that study that um, it, it was not a it was not a scientific study I don't think, but it was a uh, a study that Baskerville is actually the most persuasive font. Uh, yeah, I don't think that was a study. I think that was a a, a piece that uh, the filmmaker Errol Morris wrote That's right. for, for the yes. New York Times. And uh, 
you, you know, I think every type designer in the world kind of sighed and did the did the shruggy <laughs> right? Uh, Errol Morris, what are you going to do? Nice that he, uh, yes, who, who a man who has applied so much critical thinking and focus to his filmmaking, and then comes over and does this like ridiculous piece about uh, type. I don't know if it made people more interested in the the effect that type has on readers. Uh, great, uh, the idea that it's. Uh, I mean, it actually was quite the difference that he found, if there was any merit to it at all, was was quite drastic between Baskerville and some of the other fonts that he compared it to. Uh, I, I'm sure that within the the the, the parameters of his uh, his work, it, it was true. But I mean, it, you you don't have to use Baskerville to get the same benefit. I mean, what I re- recall from that article is that he was uh, it was it was a bit of a of a you know. <laughs> the dice were loaded, so to speak, because mm-hmm. Baskerville was facing off against some pretty awful alternatives. Um, I think it was, yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> again, it's it's not really about you know. Let's find the best font. It's more about as as lawyers, how do we you know this? The written word is so crucial to what we do. How do we get the most out of it? How do we optimize it? How do we you know make it work best for our readers? And again, typography is not going to take the place of you know good research and, and and writing and editing and you know read all of Brian Garner's books for sure. Uh, but uh, but it it's you know it can add a little something extra at the end. So uh, so if I can sum up our conversation about typography, it's something like. Um, uh, focus on typography in the same way that you would um, polish up your oral argument or um, get your shoes polished and and pick out your tie. Um, it's part of it's part of dressing up your product and performing at your fullest. Um, uh, use one space between sentences. Uh, experiment with margins and and uh, use better fonts. Uh, and uh, get a copy of typography for lawyers and stick it under your pillow and learn to live by it. Is that about right? Uh, I the, thank you. Yes, and I'll, I'll <laughs> say to to uh, the the website typographyforlawyers.com has yeah. excerpts of every section in the book uh, to give you a sense of of <laughs> the kind of you know, grueling effort. No, it, to give you no, a it, sense. The of, website is actually really if if you want the beginner's guide, the website has the information on it. Right, and it just gives you a taste of 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 where it's coming from. I think that people lawyers are often surprised to find you know, they say, oh, I thought this was going to be so boring and awful, but it's actually kind of fun and not that hard. So I, I would, you know, I would say find out for yourself that it's it's not boring and it's not difficult. And it really does uh, add a lot to your documents for not very much effort. So, uh, so now I want to get um, into the weeds a little bit um, and ask about pollen. All right. Um, uh, which is, I, I, can I call it a content management system? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a, for those who are listening, if if you're familiar with WordPress, that's a content management system that um, it, it sort of takes control of most of the framework of what your writing is going to look like on the page. Um, and Pollen is Matthew's own piece of software for putting books online, really, right? Right, and yeah, anybody who's listening, like you should, there should be like a nerd. Yeah, no, the nerd siren is. Uh, we're, gonna, we're actually going to okay, pr- yeah, probably put it in here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I wrote uh, this pollen software a, a couple years ago. Actually, I was working on a. I have a, a website called practicaltypography.com, which is sort of a a version of the typography for lawyers material, but 
but pitched toward a, a general audience instead of just lawyers. And I found myself uh, very frustrated with, I mean, in fact, the, with WordPress was, was the major culprit, just wanting to be able to have a certain flexibility in how I uh, created web pages that it didn't allow. And so, uh, again, sort of similar to the, the type designer thinks, oh, I'll just make a new font. I thought, well, I'll just make a new content management system. And, uh, and so I did. And, and so... Uh, how many people are using it? Is it just you, or do you do you have other people who are building websites on it, and and what are they doing with it? I uh, it's not just me. Uh, other people are using it. I mean, it's not like I mean, WordPress has whatever a trillion people using it. It's not like that yet. I mean, it's not even it's it's a it's a very early stage software. It's open source mm-hmm. software, so you know people can can use it for free, uh, and. You know, I've seen people building blogs with it, uh, experimenting with sort of uh, essay type writing, poetry. You know, it's interesting. I mean, for me, it's fun. Just as it's fun when I when I design type, and people want to hear, oh, well, how should I use your fonts? Like, you know, what? I don't like to be. I like to see what other people do with it because it's. You know, I don't have all the answers, and it's similar with pollen. I have the way that I use it. It you know, it runs the practical typography site. It runs the typography for lawyers website as well. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's great to see how other people uh, approach it and extend it. And so, um, I, I've I've been aware of pollen and kind of um, following it casually because uh, I'm pretty interested in in just I don't know web development in in general. Um, how how hard is it to get started playing around with it? If I want to, <laughs> well, I, I I've tried to make it as as easy as as possible. But you know, there's there's a, a hundred million different you know content management systems and and tools that will let you you know make a, a, a web pages and you know so if you can find a better one, use it. I mean, I one of the uh, the things that I did in Pollen was I discovered this uh, programming language called Racket, uh, which is a, a a sort of descendant of of Lisp, um, which some people have heard of. Uh, Lisp being one of the very oldest uh, computer languages, uh, you know, going has was invented mm-hmm. in the 50s. So, uh, but it's uh, it actually ends up being really very well suited for doing. Uh, web pages and other types of of, of textual markups. So, um, and it has other features that made me think, "Wow, this is this would be a great tool." Because I actually would had been sort of wanting to build the, the idea for Pollen had formed in my head about five years ago, and I kind of kept running into these blind alleys. And then when I finally uh, discovered Racket, I thought, "Ah, here is the the, the tool that I need to do this." So, um, it's uh, it's there's you know a whole lot of documentation that I've written with with tutorials and so on. So uh, people have said, you know, yes, it, there's more of a learning curve than with say uh, WordPress. But if you like uh, if you like programming, like a little gentle little bit of programming, um, it's it's fun because it essentially allows you to treat any document as you know a a, f- a full program. You know, and mm. you can embed any kind of programming logic into the document that you'd like, whether it's, you know, doing math operations or bringing in data from a database or any kind of, of data manipulation can happen uh, inside your document. And that's just not something that you can do with, uh, with WordPress. I know that, you know, the WordPress fans will say, oh, well, I can write a PHP. I mean, you can hack most things into it, but. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a, a different sort of mode. I mean, with, with Pollen, you can, Put those software commands directly into you know, your document along with with everything else, and then what at the end? I mean, another frustration I had with with WordPress is for those who have used it, you know, you you have to use 
do they still make you use that web-based interface where you kind of type into a little window and save it? Is that yes. the usual? Yep. Yeah. So I hate that because <laughs> I, I kind of wonder, well, where is my where is my stuff? It's saved in some database right. like up in the cloud. I mean, I want to have the source code for my my document, you know, right here on my machine and, and be able to work with it. So that's really Pollen's model of the world is more software based, uh, where, you know, it's, as I say, right in the, the first line, like the, the idea of the electronic book as a, as a software program, um, and Pollen being a tool to, to, to do that. So if you like a little bit of, of, uh, you're comfortable with a little bit of programming, I think it's, a, a, a you know, I hope it can become a, a more, uh, exciting environment for for doing electronic publications than we have now. If Do you, you feel like it's it's been rendered obsolete by um, by iBooks and Kindle books and things like that, or is it is it just sort of a fundamentally different approach? Well, uh, you know, Kindle is a good example. I I have uh, there was a Kindle version of the uh, of typography for lawyers for the first edition, and I have now suspended it because I just hated the Kindle so much. But <laughs> you know, a Kindle book is is actually uh, an HTML document, right? And the yep. Kindle reader is really just a, a, a web browser, but you know, browsing the, the, just the local pages, and it, so it's. Uh, but it's instead of you being able to use all the the HTML and, and styling commands that we have today, it's like building an a website, you know, circa 1997. So it's just uh, very limited and dull. But uh, you know, there's that acknowledgement. I mean, all these ebook formats that are ostensibly proprietary have all basically just taken subsets of of the HTML CSS world. So again, you know, Pollen. Uh, I mean, I haven't used it to make a Kindle book, but you know, you, I suppose you could. But uh, it's so it's more about. I mean, I have used it to make you know web based publications, and uh, you know, for, for that, that's really where my my focus is. So people who are uh, lawyers who are adventurous and uh, maybe are comfortable fiddling around with HTML and stuff might be a good candidate if they're thinking about publishing a book online for, you know, whether it's for clients or colleagues. Um, something more static than a blog um, and more dynamic than you would want to do on in a PDF or in a Kindle book or in an iBook or something like that. Well, yeah. Well, I I would say yes. Though you know, having thought about this whole podcast, and probably your 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 listeners' heads have already spinning about. Well, some the, I mean, some of, our, some of our listeners are pretty geeky. We definitely have people running their own Linux. All right. So the, here's and, here for the for the nerds. Yeah, I'd say by all means, uh, come come check it out. And I've I've gotten uh, messages from lawyers, you know, nerdy lawyers who've tried it out. And they say, wow, this is this is really great. How how much uh, control this offers. I'd actually like to uh, improve Pollen to the point where it can do things like. I mean, right now it's really better at, at web pages, but there's nothing in it that prevents it from, from being able to generate a, a PDF from, from a document, right? Hmm. And we think about, you know, when you think about lawyer documents, right, briefs, right, the typical brief you file in court, so much fiddly formatting that goes on. And to me, as I look at that document, both as a, you know, as, as a typographer, I say, geez, so much of that could be automated. So I, I, you know, have this idea to sort of get pollen to the point where you could actually write your briefs in, in a more sort of stripped down, you know, almost like markdown style. Mm-hmm. And then kind of put it through this document processor, and all the formatting just kind of magically happens for you. Very cool. Well, for those for those lawyers who are um, sufficiently nerdy to be able to fool around with such things, um, check out Pollen and um, maybe even follow the project and help out. Um, 
Matthew, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Um, I kept you for much longer than I usually do, but that's because I'm a big fan and I love geeking out about typography. So, <laughs> well, thank you uh, for for all the kind words, and I know that uh, you know lawyerist uh, uh, is, is you know runs things like you know you guys talk about typography and design all the time, and uh, I appreciate it so much because for me that's the greatest satisfaction. I mean, I'm I, I'm enthusiastic about this material, but to share it and then have other people get enthusiastic too and kind of be you know have the 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 fever spread is is very uh, satisfying. So thank you. Awesome. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.